This is from the Gospel according to John, chapter 14, verses 9 through 12. And this is Jesus speaking to his disciples, preparing, him, preparing them for his leaving. So how can you say, let us see the Father? Don't you believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? I don't say what I say on my own. The Father is with me. I constantly perform his labors. You ought to believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. But if not, at least you ought to believe these labors in and of themselves. Truly, I say, anyone who believes in me will do the works I've done, and even greater things, because I'm on my way to the Father. You will do the works I've done, and even greater things. So I'd like to, to thank our worship associate, Marge Krupp, for the inspiration for this service. And this line from the book of John in the New Testament is indeed one that she's been personally pondering for some time now. And I'm always reminded of a couple of things whenever I preach about the Bible in a Unitarian Universalist pulpit. The verse is that when I was in fourth grade Sunday school at the Birmingham Unitarian Church in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan, our Bible stories class was taught by none other than my father who reminded us squirrely kids every week that we study the Bible. Why? Because it teaches us about ourselves, our families, our societies, and our culture. The stories and characters therein, in some way, like in all great literature, had something to say about human nature, our relationships with one another, our confrontation with our own mortality, and our interaction with the unknown. Now, the second thing I'm reminded of whenever the Bible comes up in church is that at my first professional ministry in Stockton, Illinois, all of the church's Bibles were kept in a cabinet at the base of the pulpit. And this practice continues to this day, and it was explained to me that one of my predecessors got so tired of the question, why don't you ever preach on the Bible? <laughs> that he placed him there so he could honestly say, I preach on the Bible every week. <laughs> so, we're preaching on the Bible this week. Now, John, of course, is a book in the New Testament that, unlike the other three official Gospels, focuses not on a linear accounting of Jesus' life and deeds, but rather uplifts his works in the context of an evolving theology that places Jesus in direct alignment with God the Creator. Attributed only to, quote, a disciple whom Jesus loved, the book of John, as we know it, dates from around the year 90 or maybe a little later, near 90 of the Common Era, at least, at least 60 years or so after Jesus of Nazareth lived and died. And because of its similarity in style and message to several of the epistles in the book of Revelation, Revelation is singular, by the way, 
John is considered part of what's called Johannine literature, which makes up a significant percentage of what we know as the New Testament. And because this grouping of literature is more concerned about establishing the character of Jesus as the hero figure and justifying the theological claim that Jesus is on par or equal with God the Father of the Hebrew Scriptures. It deals much more with the miracles and parables of Jesus than with an accurate historical accounting of events. John details the resurrection and the appearance of Jesus to the disciples after his execution more than any of the other New Testament writings and lays out in no uncertain terms that the religion of Jesus is distinct, is different from the Judaism out of which it came. And now despite, or perhaps because of John's explicit claims that Jesus was one with God, John has continued to influence heavily the Christianity that's practiced all around the world today. For a liberal religion, however, John has proven problematic at times in its absolutes, and uh, John itself has been used to justify all sorts of atrocities in the name of Christendom, including ending the practice of Unitarianism within the church and forever casting out our spiritual ancestors for claiming that Jesus was perhaps more divinely special than other people, but was not the same thing as God. But for our purposes this morning, what we must remember about John in particular and the New Testament in general is that these writings represent only some of the texts created in the early days of Christianity. They were compiled, edited, recompiled over the years, and that they were later included in the New Testament to the detriment and exclusion of other texts. It's called canonization. I know that term. That process by which some writings were included in the official book of the New Testament and some were left out. And this happened over the years, motivated increasingly by those in control of the, the Christian church, which was in itself increasing in power. During this process, more and more of these editors in charge of establishing the true teachings of the church lifted up the stories and writings that claimed the absolute power of Jesus so as to reinforce their own claim to authority. Writings which were less specific about the role of Jesus and the unified power of the church were increasingly discarded, dismissed, and forgotten regardless of the legitimacy of their authorship or the way they reflected the views of different early Christian communities. And as a result of this tendency in the work of modern biblical research, we can pretty much say that none of the things attributed to Jesus in the book of John was actually said by Jesus. So removed from the source material were the authors of John according to this book's own narration, at least a full generation after anyone who knew Jesus had lived. Again, you think around the year 90 of the Common Era. The modern biblical scholars don't believe any quote in John is direct, save one line that corresponds to that famous saying about prophets not being respected in their home. 
And that, even that, was probably the result of a later editorial edition. Now, in fact, there's a great academic tome, big, big book compiled by folks who do just this research. Parse through ancient versions of texts and figure out what things Jesus might actually have said. And it's, it's called the Five Gospels. It actually includes the Gospel of Thomas as well as the four, the four that we know. It's called the Five Gospels. What did Jesus really say? And it very cleverly color codes every quote from Jesus throughout the New Testament and the Gospel of Thomas based on scholars' votes regarding what they think is the authenticity, authenticity level of the quote. So dark red, if the text is dark red, it means that almost all the scholars agree that Jesus said the line or something very similar in content and phrasing. Pink means it was possible that he said it and represented something known about Jesus' personality and opinions. Gray means it was unlikely that he said it, but in some way accurately reflects something known about Jesus. And the dark, bold, black text means that it is an invention of later authors. And in this anthology, with the exception of the one pink line that seems out of place about the prophet not being uh, recognized at home, all of John's quotes are black. Now, regardless of the fact that there's no evidence that Jesus said the line that is the inspiration for this service, it can indeed teach us about the Christian faith, out of which our tradition came, and potentially speak to one of our own kind of widely accepted truths. You will do the works I've done and even greater things. So if we, if we take the story of John simply on face value, a story, a heroic biography, kind of similar to the Greco-Roman style of biography, this line is said in preparation of Jesus' death. He is telling those who love him and rely on his leadership to not fear his death because they have inside them the capacity to carry on the work. The Johannine metaphor of this is, of course, the literal salvation, the rising of the dead to live in the kingdom of God, but it's not the only thing that the character of Jesus is communicating with this line. He's saying, don't be intimidated by what you've seen me do. You yourselves are holy when you are doing God's work. You who have listened to this message of love can continue to love even if the original messenger is gone. And even more than this, Jesus is saying that you must continue to do it, and you must do it without me physically with you. Now again, in the, in the Johannine metaphor, Jesus must go to, job, to God and clear a place for the faithful, to kind of curry favor with the Almighty for those who would listen and learn the teachings. Without Jesus leaving and without the continuing of his ministry after he's gone, the promise of salvation will not be fulfilled. Now I'm, of course, reminded by Dr. King's words the night before he died. He was speaking to the people of Memphis, imploring them to come out and, and march in support of the sanitation workers' strike. And he said this, 
He said, quote, because I've been to the mountaintop, and I don't mind, like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain, and I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. End quote. Now he's echoing directly what is said in John. Put aside your anxiety. You can do this. Even if I'm not here to remind you that you can. And that we can do this together. In fact, if it's going to be accomplished, we have to do it together. Now, the other subcurrent in Jesus' line in John is that there is no difference between us. That all who walk in the light of God are divine children, and it is through this connection that all of us are indeed holy. Now, the rabbi in the earlier story was not only pragmatic in getting the monks to all treat each other and themselves as if they each might be the Messiah, he was right. In planting the seeds of hope that the prophetic presence was already among them, he was forcing the monks to recognize the divinity in everyone there. And as the story goes, the monastery was thus saved from ruin and began to actually do its job of sharing love and support to the people of the area. And all of us, from John to Dr. King to the good rabbi in our story is pointing to one singular truth, one that some in our spiritual lineage have been professing nearly as long as the book of John has been written. What is that? It's my favorite word. Everybody say it with me. Universalism. One, two, three. Universalism. Many early Christian writers were taken by the universal nature of Jesus' ministry. Again, Jesus' ministry affected not only Jews, but Gentiles and all who would join the movement, regardless of whence they came. And one of these was a cleric named Origen. Origen was a priest and a scholar, and he lived in Alexandria from the late 2nd century sometime until the middle of the 3rd century of the Common Era. He was the one who claimed the eternal existence of all souls that came from the Creator and would eventually be reunited with the Creator. He called this in Greek, the Greek is apokatastasis, which is a restoration of something to its original condition. But in English, this is universal salvation. This is universalism. Origen also said that the Holy Spirit dwells within and outside of every person whether they recognize it or not. Now, Origen's teaching, though widely accepted while he lived, have largely been dismissed as heresy by the later church. But his method of analyzing sacred texts gave birth to the biblical scholarship that we know today. And Origen himself has directly or indirectly affected every Western theologian, philosopher, clergy member, and religious educator to come after him. You will do the works I've done, and even 
greater things. So where exactly does this leave us? Well, remember that the Bible teaches us about ourselves, our families, our society, and our culture. What is this snippet from God teaching us about ourselves? I'd argue that this is pointing directly to that original original truth, the truth of origin, that we are all of the same divine substance, and to that same divine substance we shall return, that the love within us and outside of us is the same love, that we are all deserving of and beholden to this love. We are more like Jesus than some of us would like to admit. People who fail, fail spectacularly at times, but always have the capacity to learn, to do better, and to make a better world. And as great a singular leader as we may have at any time, be it Jesus or Buddha or Gandhi or King, their work is impossible without the countless others who carry on their legacy throughout the generations. In order for the teacher to be successful, the students must act upon the wisdom they gain from their studies. In order for the prophet to be successful, the believers must act out the vision as described, do the work of fulfillment, regardless of whether or not the prophet still walks among them. And more than anything, that we are each, both prophet and believer, both student and teacher, both profane and sacred, both mundane and divine. It may indeed be our greatest fear that we are powerful beyond measure, but in this is also our greatest strength and source of our greatest obligation. The divinity within us compels us to be ever better people than we are. And we do this by recognizing not only our own light, but the fact that the light lies within every person we meet, every being we encounter. Now, this is, of course, much easier to say from a pulpit than to do in everyday life. When stress and arguments, illness, personal injustices all take precedence over the care we show ourselves and our fellow human beings. But there's another definition of universalism, and that's that we're all in this together, and that we are tasked with ever choosing love over fear. Now, fear is that which divides us, distracts us from that knowledge that we are all connected, all responsible, all deserving. Fear is what the disciples felt when they realized that their leader would be leading them to fend for themselves, alone, amongst the hostile environment Jesus himself railed against and which would cause his death. Fear is what we feel when we are threatened by a dimming economy, the thought that we might have to make do with less, that we are doomed to a planet with rising oceans and temperatures, that there is simply too much to do and too little time to do it in. Fear is what keeps us from taking risks simply for the possibility that we might get hurt. Fear separates our thoughts of others into groupings of us and them, which of course quickly turns into us 
versus them. But love, love, however, is the choice we make when we risk something important. Our pride, our security, our selfish desires, we risk something important in the name of a greater good. When we risk a small portion of our own privilege in order, in order to stand up for one who has been discounted. When we enter into a relationship with someone different than we are and do so with both the understanding and expectation that we ourselves will change as a result. When we deign to listen to another's story and consider it legitimate, even when it flies in the face of everything we think we know about a situation. And when we admit to ourselves that we are indeed powerful beyond measure, and that everyone else is too. Love is what teaches us to treat everyone, including ourselves, as if we were the Messiah, because in truth, we all are. In this, you will certainly do the works he's done, and even greater things, all in the name of universalism, all in the name of love. May it be so. Blessed be. And amen.